Welcome to Reinventing Solidarity, a podcast of the journal New Labor Forum and the School of Labor and Urban Studies at the City University of New York. My name is Paula Finn, podcast host and editor of New Labor Forum. Reinventing Solidarity features scholars, activists, and artists on the front lines of movements for social and economic justice. We ask the essential and often provocative questions about race, class, gender, and the role of organized labor and social justice organizations in the work of creating a radically different world, a world with solidarity, equality, and sustainability at its heart. This episode of our podcast features New Labor Forum consulting editor Joshua Freeman in conversation with Jack Metzger, author of the landmark book, Striking Steel, Solidarity Remembered, published a little over 20 years ago and still taught widely in labor studies classrooms today. Here, they speak about Metzger's recent book, Bridging the Divide, working class culture in a middle-class society out just last month and scheduled for review in the May 2022 issue of New Labor Forum. Josh, you read this book in galleys, I believe. What would you say are the major contributions of the book to our understanding of how class functions in the U.S. today? Well, I think we have a lot of talk around in, in, in in the media and elsewhere about uh, working class culture and particularly white working class culture, often quite negative. You know, it's seen as a kind of support for Trumpism, kind of atavistic culture. And, and one of the things I loved about Jack's book is he really looks closely what actually is this culture and rather than dismissing it as a uh, as simply a negative thing, or like uh, some sociologists denying there even is a working class culture, he really looks at this with a very nuanced eye to see what he sees as great strengths in working class culture, as well as a lot of weaknesses. So it's it's a really frank look at, at, at working class life. And some of the things that he thinks that middle class progressives can learn from looking at that working class culture. Hmm. Though, though there's some debate over whether working class voters, especially white working class vo voters, actually delivered the Trump presidency, their alienation from the Democratic Party and from progressive politics is certainly a fact. What, what would you say readers might take from, from this book, those who are seeking some sort of a progressive realignment with working class voters? Well, I think one thing the book shows is the tremendous stress that the four decades of economic decline have put on working class people and the way a once very generous culture has become a little bit more constricted. But I think Jack also shows hook points, places where people trying to build coalitions, pushing for progressive change, can find ways of talking to and approaching working class people, which might not be so obvious if you just accept these kind of superficial journalistic stereotypes, which I think Jack shows are pretty wrong. Well, I found your discussion with Metzger not only thoughtful, but also humane and at times funny, which is rare these days. So I just want to, I want to thank you for bringing Bridging the Divide to the wide audience 
it deserves. Let's let's take a listen. I'd like to welcome Jack Metzger, who's with us today to talk about his new book, Bridging the Divide, Working Class Culture in a Middle Class Society. Bridging the Divide is, is an exceptionally provocative and engaging book, a look at working class and middle class culture in the United States. You know, how they differ and how each was transformed as we went from decades of growth after World War II to more recently decades of stagnation and decline. Many of you, I am sure, are familiar with Jack's earlier work. Jack is the son of a steelworker and a homemaker in Johnstown, Pennsylvania. He received a doctorate in philosophy from Northwestern University before beginning a long career as an educator and labor activist. For many years, Jack was professor of humanities at Roosevelt University in Chicago, which, for those of you unfamiliar with it, is a school with a student body quite similar to ours here at CUNY SLU. At the same time, Jack was one of the pillars of the movement in the Midwest to support industrial workers facing deindustrialization. During these years, he served as editor of Midwest Labor Review. More recently, he was president of the Working Class Studies Association. Jack's earlier book, Striking Steel, Solidarity Remembered, in my view, is the best single account that we have of how unionism transformed the lives of American workers, in part using his own family to tell the story. Bridging the Divide picks up a thread in Striking Steel in its deep look at working class culture, its strengths and weaknesses, and what middle class people might learn from it. Uh, like all of Jack's work, it combines an incisive intelligence with a wonderful narrative style and a kind of generosity of spirit, which I think is often lacking in our efforts to grapple with the difficult issues of class. After that somewhat long-winded introduction, welcome, Jack. Thank you for that introduction. You made me sound pretty good. Let, let's get right into it. You know, the, the introduction for your book is, is subtitled Achieving Mediocrity. And I know at one point you were even thinking about calling the whole book Achieving Mediocrity. That, that's an unusual phrase. And equally unusual is the way you portray mediocrity as a good thing. Why would anyone want to achieve mediocrity? And why, as you say you did, why do you want to achieve mediocrity? I really like the phrase. It's provocative, catchy, but it allows me to take a provocative poke at achievement ideology within professional middle-class culture. And also to kind of, right in the beginning of the book, make a strong suggestion about the differences between the two the two cultures, working class and middle class culture. And you think about it, in a middle class world, like the one I live in, if someone calls you mediocre or worse, a mediocrity, uh, somehow that's worse, it's an insult and it feels bad, but it just means you're okay, you're adequate, common, ordinary. It just means you're not outstanding. And often in context, it means, hey, you're pretty good, but you're not really that good, or you're not really outstanding or excellent. And so the achievement ideology sets up a sense in middle-class life, in middle-class culture, 
that we need to pursue excellence and be outstanding and extraordinary. We might not end up being that way. And I didn't aspire to mediocrity. I aspired to greatness and didn't make it. But that aspiration is really part of middle-class culture and life and a powerful part of it. The problem with it is it makes us middle-class professionals inclined to want to be better, not only than somebody else, but better than almost everybody else. If you're going to be extraordinary or excellent, you know, you're, you're really great. <clears throat> and that contrasts really with working class culture that I've known, where there are actually sanctions against putting yourself above, foreseeing yourself as better. And there's a uh, positive value to being common, to being, to being down to earth. So this is an initial contrast. And it sort of is prejudice toward working class culture, which I try not to be completely in the book. But it, it helps, I think, frame what I'm trying to do. The final thing about mediocrity is that I found both American and French revolutionaries in the late 18th century using the word in a positive way that meant common. So Benjamin Franklin talked about a general happy mediocrity in the northern non-slaveholding states. And the Jacobins talked about an honorable mediocrity as something to be aspired to. So I, I use that sense to, to associate mediocrity and the pursuit of common, the common and pursuit of equality really with the kind of 200 plus year long democratic revolution that, that you and many others have, have written about. So mediocrity I associate with that drive, that quite a radical idea in the late 18th century that not only government, government and life should be organized in a way that benefits common, ordinary, mediocrity, uh, mediocre mass of humanity. Well, um, you know, in your introduction, you have a, some wonderful anecdotes from your old childhood about kind of aspiring to mediocrity. And I, I, I hate to tell you, I, I think you've kind of failed. <laughs> but maybe, maybe our audience can judge it after they read the book for themselves. I, I want to get back in a, in a moment to this issue of working class culture and middle class culture, how they differ, you know, which is the core of the book. But, but it's not exactly the way you start. You start with a discussion of the immediate post-war years, which, for which you describe using a, a French term, you know, the glorious 30, which is not well known here in the United States. And I was hoping that maybe you could talk a little bit about why this is such a touchstone for you and what that phrase means. What was glorious about the glorious 30 and why? And this is another one of your wonderful phrases. We should have what you call restorative nostalgia about the glorious 30. I'll start with the nostalgia part. I do a lot of, I make a, a lot of effort to say nostalgia isn't just looking at, uh, remember, with rose-colored glasses looking at the past and making it seem better than it, than it was. It's more like grief. And in the world I reside in, the world of my family back in a de very deindustrialized place that was once very prosperous, 
uh, there's a lot of nostalgia that people try to avoid, you know, because it's like grief. You know, uh, denial is, you know, one of the, the stages. So I try to take that nostalgia and say there's a rational kernel to it. This was a go- there was a golden age from 1945, roughly from 1945 to 1975, that we should we should look at and and try to find out what was gold in that golden age and what what of it that we could restore. Would we want to restore? We want to don't want to restore all of it, but what would we want to restore and what could we? And those things, I have three points to make about. Part of the gold was the economic prosperity, just the standard economic growth, inflation, unemployment. All of that was the best we ever had before those 30 years and since. But that prosperity was shared in a way that it had never been before. So the bottom 20 percent of families, their incomes more than doubled, while the top 20 uh, across that 30 years while the top 20%, a little less than double. So everybody improved across the board, but more at the bottom end than at the top. So there was increasing equality, material equality. But more important on the economic side, I try to focus on the enormous, what I think was an enormous increase in discretionary income and time. And not everybody uses the term discretionary income in the right way. The disposable income is your income after taxes. Discretionary income is your income after all your basic expenses are covered. It's the money you have that you get to decide how to, how to spend it. Almost, I mean, very few people had discretionary income for 1945 or 19, 1940. And as that period progressed, more and more people had discretionary income and discretionary income increased. Now, a lot of that people get, get scholars have criticized consumerism, et cetera. But discretionary income is freedom, freedom to decide. And you might buy baubles or you might put, you might put, put it in your church collection plate. But you get to decide that as opposed to just paying the bills and getting, getting by. The other thing is there was a, a significant increase in free time. I won't go into that, but the main piece of that was the weekend begins in the fall of 1945 as an actual reality. And by 1975, retirement is a standard stage of life, which it had never been before. But I got, so that's the economics. And that's sort of well-known and built on scholarly materials. What's less paid attention to is that this was a golden age of collective action, beginning with the labor movement and the strike wave of 1945-46. The 1950s saw more strikes, more people involved, more workers involved in the strikes, and more work time lost than any other decade in American history, the placid 50s when nothing, when nothing was happening. And that established, I argue, a model of organized collective action and exhibited its potential power. So from 55 to 68, you have the the golden age of the civil rights movement. In June of 1969, the Stonewall riots kick off what is now the modern 
kick off the modern gay liberation movement, and which had in fact begun in the early 50s in a more polite way. And the women's movement, it, it, the second second wave feminism, is birthed in the in the 60s. So <laughs> it's those economic prosperity in the golden age of collective action, and I try to show how economic prosperity shared like that as new possibilities and people are freed up to decide what to do with their lives is likely to result in unhappiness with injustices long endured. And there's a quote from Tocqueville that, that I use that the, as things improve, people's sense of possibility improves. And they are, even though, and this is a quote from him, even as things get better, sensitivities to injust, other injustices become more acute. And I think that's what happened during this glorious 30. So that's a pretty, pretty wonderful, glorious package um, to look at what we did right and what we might be able to recover. You, you look at, 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 at working class culture during this period of time that you've just been talking about, and in doing so, you're really going against the, the mainstream of American social science, which tends to either dismiss working class culture, really not see there being a distinct working class culture in the United States, or it's often portrayed in strictly negative terms. You argue not only that there is a distinct working class culture, but you know that has many virtues. At one point, you even argue that working class people in general are more ethical and trustworthy than middle class professionals. Could you lay out this, this kind of core argument here that you have about the existence of a distinct working class culture you know, during this period and, and ever since? Yeah, you know, I think that is a major theme of the book to show the, the value of working class culture and to really argue that there are two alternative class cultures that are equally valid, valid, valuable, and productive. Not just one, not just the mainstream professional middle class one, but the working class culture is a valid and valuable alternative. So that, that is one of the major themes of the book. And sometimes that causes me to seem like I'm more critical of the the middle class that they and to some extent I am because they have they we have more power and more visibility and frankly claim to be <laughs> the mainstream culture. Maybe yeah. you can tease out for us some of the big differences that you see between that middle class culture and working class culture. Because I don't think it's something that that most people are positioned in the way that you've been to, to, to really understand. But basically, I try to show that middle-class culture, the core of it is about aspiration, achievement, and becoming. And that there's a dynamic sense of self that should always be improved and can even be completely made over, particularly when you're young. So that's a, that's a great culture, right? Working class culture is about prioritizes authenticity, character, and belonging, and has a more restricted sense of self. In fact, it's often that people think they have conceived that they have a true self, 
that they should be true too. So they have a less dynamic sense of, of self than the middle class. Authenticity, character, belonging, those are, that's a good culture too. And these are matters of emphasis and cultures push us, guide us, nudge us, pressure, pressure us to behave in certain ways and to have certain dispositions and expectations. So that's, that's the core difference I see. Then there's a lot of other things like middle-class culture teaches us to expect to live within a career, whereas working-class culture makes a stronger separation between work and the rest of life with the work being necessity and the rest of life being freedom. And that gives you a, a whole, a lot of different differences in ways of life, given those two different cultures that reflect different realities, usually. Working class culture is more parochial and present oriented. Middle class culture at least tries to be and probably is more cosmopolitan and future oriented. And finally, middle-class culture, professional middle-class culture is more individualistic and much, much more status conscious, whereas working-class culture tends to have contempt for status and particularly status hierarchies and to be much more comfortable with uh, mutual dependencies, the belonging kind of aspect. So that's a thumbnail sketch. Now I kind of you know, I tell stories and I d develop all of those differences in a way that I hope the reader will find credible or at least interesting to think about. Well, before we dive a little bit deeper into some of the characteristics that you put forth, particularly about working class culture, you do tell some wonderful stories in the book. And I wonder maybe you could fill in some of the a bit abstract things that you just said with maybe some of the ways that you use as examples in the book from your own life and your family to the world, your teaching experiences also about, you know, what do these things actually mean in terms of how people behave and behave towards one another? I've told people this story that when I was in seventh grade, it was a big transitional year. We went from our elementary school to this huge junior high school that had four grades in it. And it was more like high school transition for people today. So I had to adjust and I learned how to wear a black t-shirt and tuck it in and get a haircut about with Balboa haircut, which was slicked back on the side with drill cream and a crew cut on the top and act punky. And, you know, so I learned all that. And so I asked my mother, I think I'm pretty cool. Am I handsome? And she thought about it a minute and said, no, not really. <laughs> and when I tell people that story, it seems like really cruel. But it nudged me in a way that I shouldn't expect to get some of the best looking girls in junior high school. And then I should pay more attention to hanging out with the lads, which is what I did. And working class realism has this aspect of, you know, some people think it's just because parents feel their kids will be disappointed by aspiring to too much. But it's also that if you aspire to too much or in the wrong direction, you're going to miss the possibility. You, you, you may miss the possibilities that are really open to you. So that there's that sense of uh, working class realism that isn't just low expectations 
it's uh, it's it's actually a way to cope, to make do, to get better, but in difficult in difficult circumstances where you have limited possibilities, even if you're handsome. You know, you have a couple of chapters in the book that deal with these aspects of working class culture, including what you've just been talking about, working class realism. Two other phrases that you use, which are very intriguing, are ceding control to gain control and taking it and living in the moments. And, you know, we don't have a huge amount of time, but maybe you could pick up one of those anyway and, and, and tell us a little bit about what those things mean. I'll try ceding control to gain control. In working class life, and there are analogies to middle class life with this, the sense of trading eight hours where you get to be, where you're going to be bossed around for the rest of your hours, where you're, 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 you have the necessity of earning a living, but then you get to do the, the, the living. That's a seeding control to gain control. So I, you seed control of eight hours to gain control of the other 16 and with a week. <laughs> and so I see that being repeated in working class life in a way that it often looks like, one, deference. Uh, working class parents, some sociologists have found, actually teach deference and obedience to authority, things like that. And that can look like a very subjugating, a completely subjugating thing. But if you see it as the, the way seeding control allows you to gain control elsewhere, that happens even in the workplace. After you've said, okay, I'm, you know, the boss gets the boss me around. There's this huge literature on factories, which I know you know, of soldiering, gold bricking, banking, where, where workers, even in highly restricted workplaces like uh, assembly line, find ways, are ingenious in finding ways to have autonomy and agency within even the most controlled environment. And that happens in the rest of life as well. And there's a kind of a, a built-in kind of conservatism to it that I try to get at while showing the resistance, both tactical and strategic, that is within that the gaining control part. And that's so working class life, which to middle class eyes, and particularly middle class progressives, can look too passive, too accepting, too subjugated, too dominated. Some, there's truth to all of that. And I try to, to recognize that. But you're, you're missing the kind of on, on the ground ingenuity that people use to get by. And you're going to miss that tactical and strategic resistance and the potential it has for being expanded. You know, you call your argument, uh, another one of your great phrases, rigorously non-intersectional. And, and I think what you mean by this is that, you know, very broadly speaking, you're arguing in this book that there's a working class culture that goes across racial, ethnic, gender, other kinds of boundaries, very, very inclusive, a lot that's shared. And you don't go into great length. I mean, you talk about various differences and so forth within working class culture, but the main thrust is, is, is towards commonality. And, you know, it, it strikes me that this kind of goes against the current sort of flow in our popular culture, even in academic circles, 
which is, has such a tremendous stress on the importance of race and ethnicity and gender and sexuality and other kinds of traits. I think sometimes we use a very simplistic shorthand there of identity politics, but in, in the belief that these are so fundamental in, in, in constituting how people think of themselves and how they behave, you seem to be going in a kind of different direction here. So could you talk a little bit about why you believe that to be true and what you think the implications of that are? Yeah, I w- first, I, w- I want to make clear that I do not deny or even challenge the importance of intersectionality in under- understanding individuals and individual situations. What I'm trying to do is isolate the class part that is the class culture part that is embedded in this very messy happy habitat that is the individual human being and the individual situations. And as much as intersectionality is praised, it's very hard to do when you just trying to understand yourself, what role did religion play? What role does my life stage play? What, what role does my uh, gender and sexuality and ethnic back? When you, when you try to think about how is all that shaped me, it's pretty, it's pretty tough. So I'm trying to isolate one aspect class, which in the intersectional analyses I've seen generally takes a back seat and needs to be highlighted in order to get a better, more prominent place in the intersectional understanding. There's another argument that, that you make at various points in your book that really kind of struck me, which is that higher education has been overemphasized in your view as a sort of path for both individual betterment and also for social advance. That's not something many people say, and certainly not many people like you and I, who have spent a lifetime cashing checks from higher education institutions. So what's up? You know, why do you think that common belief across a lot of different political points of view, that higher education is kind of the key to advancing, may not really be the truth? It's actually a colossally stupid idea. But in terms of individual betterment, I earned those paychecks, Josh. Uh, <laughs> I, I help better a lot of individuals. So education, it, you know, and it has transformative. It's transformative in my life. I've seen it as a, as a teacher with the people that you get to know over, over time. But as a way of reducing inequality, of raising the material conditions of the bottom 60 to 80% of the population, it just, the arithmetic will not work. They're just simply, so, that, so there's this idea, Biden has broken with this in a, a significant way, but clearly under the, the Obama administration and prior to that, the only way to, for people to improve their life was to get more education so they could get one of the better jobs. And that makes sense because there's all this difference between, you know, these graphs that show if you have a college education, you make this much in a lifetime. And if you only have a high school education, you make this much. So there's that distinction. Problem is two thirds of the jobs are not those good jobs. So even if you get a high school education, 
you're still going to be working at Starbucks. And that's true of two out of five people who are graduating from college today. Most jobs, the largest number of jobs being created in our society, not the fastest growing, but the largest number are in retail and care and care and cooking and janitoring and landscaping and uh, warehousing and all these things that do not require a college education. So my point is, if you want to raise wages, you need to raise wages. If you want to improve uh, conditions, you need to improve a quality of condition. And so just trying to have equal opportunity so everybody gets a place at a good university and then could possibly get one of those good, good jobs is misdirected. What we need is a quality, more, a quality of condition. And so the whole emphasis on higher education distracts from, from that. Final point, I think that emphasis that this is the only way to improve your life is to get more and more education is toxic. It's not good for education. I mean, I never had to teach young people, but I have this impression that there's a lot of people going to college, including some of my relatives, who are there to get the certificate to get a good job. We are organizing ourselves as universities to, to be job preparation, which that's important, important function. But it takes away from a broader sense of what a university and a higher education can be. Well, I, I, I have recently retired, so I will not <laughs> suffer from you convincing. <laughs> no, no I, I actually agree with you, Jack. And I'm really glad you make that argument because it, it, it becomes a kind of weapon against a lot of people to, to, yes. to, uh, to, in a way, it becomes yet another way of saying, oh, it's all your fault, you know, that you didn't fully take advantage of this. And given, I'm sure your students at Roosevelt and our students at CUNY, all the enormous struggles that they face. And somehow this is yet another way of saying, you know, if this doesn't all work out for you, you know, well, it's just your fault. And so I, I, was, I was very glad that you, you made that argument. Let me ask you one kind let of- me, uh, Let me just add one thing to that, Josh. Yeah. And that is, it's toxic for class relations as well, because embodied in that is, as middle-class professionals, we, you know, the ideology says, look, what you need to do to improve your life is become more like us. <laughs> and we'll teach you how to become more like us. And if working class culture is a strong and genuine and valuable culture, that makes it very hard for people that have a strong sense of that culture to become more like us. And they tend to resent us for having that narrow view of who and what they, what they are and could become. So it, it sets up a, a bad set of cl class relationships between the middle class and the working class, I think. We are just about out of time, Jack. Any final thoughts that you want to throw in? Just to say that this discussion sounds more abstract than the book. And I do think that a lot of the conceptual framework that I provide will be valuable to people, whether they agree with me or not, in thinking about class and class cultures. But there's a lot of, as you, as you mentioned, there's a lot of stories and memoirs stuff and my life as a teacher and, and, and drawing on various experiences from different ethnic groups, you know, that make it not as abstract as this may have sounded. No, Jack, it's a wonderful book. And I have to endorse what you just said. I I found myself repeatedly thinking 
as I was reading your book, oh, that's what this is about with my great uncle so-and-so, you know, that, uh, that you, you have a way of thinking about everyday behavior that puts it in a kind of context, both a, 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 a kind of economic and political context, but also, you know, how the things we do as individuals are both individual, but not so individual. They, 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 they come out of broad flows. And so it was, it was one of these books which I, I found myself keeping on thinking about and thinking some more and thinking some more since I've read it. So congratulations on a wonderful book. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks everyone for joining us. And I look forward to the next SLU programming. And thank you and SLU for having me. This, this has been great. Thanks, John. Issues like those raised in today's podcast are taken up in classroom discussions at the School of Labor and Urban Studies, where our preeminent faculty and engaged and diverse student body grapple with the most pressing challenges confronting organized labor and working class communities. For more information about the school, visit slu.cuny.edu. To learn more about the podcast and listen to other episodes, visit slu.cuny.edu slash podcast. And to subscribe to New Labor Forum or sign up for our free monthly newsletter, visit newlaborforum.cuny.edu.